I'm Tash McGill. And I'm Vincent Herringer. And this is The Feed, a weekly wrap of the news, views and skews on New Zealand food, drink and everything in between. The feed is for those who grow food. The ones who make, harvest and forage. Who package, ship and sell food. Most importantly, for those who eat food and like to talk about it. So join us at thefeed.co.nz and now, welcome to The Feed Weekly. This week it's time to talk about cheese prices, a new biosecurity tool that could reduce the nutritional value of your food and a chaotic but inspiring challenge that a hospitality collective in Auckland is taking on to help one small business bounce back from COVID. We're also talking to Katie Jacobs who traded a career in luxury champagne and spirits to build a startup to help busy people grow more of their own food. Love this show or simply keen to show your support? Give us five stars for the podca- podcast and subscribe to the newsletter at thefeed.co.nz. We are always grateful for your support. What have you been up to this week, Vincent? It has been a busy week, Tash. Uh, this week, I'm neck deep in strategy. Uh, I've been rereading a, a document that was produced about 18 months ago called Fit for a Be- Better World. And it's written by the Primary Sector Council, which is kind of the biggest industry group in the primary sector, involves all the players, including the government. Uh, it's a great document. If you are into strategy and wanting to think about the future of our primary sector, um, this is a good piece of work. It's It's uh, ties our future very much into this holistic view of food production right from ground up, you know, so a healthy air, a healthy land, healthy water, healthy people will produce healthy food. And it's all tied together with this beautiful Māori concept of the taio, which is, roughly speaking, the earth. Lovely. Mm. I told, you know, if you're interested in this stuff, this is a good read. It's available online. Excellent. Well, my week has been, not unsurprisingly, uh, focused on all things spirits once again. (laughs) You're a very spiritual person, Tash. Uh, Deeply spiritual. I uh, was lucky enough to host a whiskey tasting at the West End Lawn Tennis Club. It Ah. was a fundraiser, but hosted that on Friday night uh, and uh, nearly finished uh, with writing the content for the next New Zealand Gin Guide. How about that? I find that whiskey improves my tennis uh, a great deal. Before or after? Both. <laughs> uh, well, please send your recommendations uh, and questions about wine and food to us at the edit- at editor at thefeed.co.nz and uh, we will discuss them and we will talk about them and the best one will possibly go into a draw to win something, but we're going to announce that next week. Uh, but we'd love to hear from you about what you're up to in the world of food and drink and do follow us on social, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and now LinkedIn as well at the Feed. NZ, And you can sign up, of course, to our newsletter, which goes out every week, roughly speaking on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, at thefeed.co.nz. And now it's time for the news. It's hoped that a trial of durum wheat in the Wairarapa will help supply flour for New Zealand's growing appetite for pasta. Durham wheat, if you didn't know, and I didn't know until uh, recently, has been grown in Canterbury and processed in a factory in Timaru, but inconsistent quality led to the factory moving to Australia. An MPI industry-funded study carried out between 2017-2020 found that the wheat, the Durham wheat, could be successfully grown in the Wairarapa thanks to warm, dry summers and good quality soils. The Foundation of Arable Research is doing further work to see if growers can get the best value from this important crop. This is good news for New Zealand, uh, Tash, because what we often think is New Zealand-made bread and pasta actually is made from imported wheat, especially Australian wheat. 
you know, nothing against the Australians, but wouldn't it be great if we could grow our own? It certainly would. More imported fresh fruits and vegetables treated with irradiation could soon be on sale on New Zealand shelves if a rule change goes through. Food Standards Australia and New Zealand, or FSANS, as they're more commonly known, is expected to finalise the change this month, despite the fact that 95% of submissions received about it were opposed to the change. FSANS has acknowledged the treatment could reduce the nutritional value of produce, although it says that this is minimal. FSANS decided irradiation was a safe and effective biosecurity tool and will help open up export markets, bringing Australia and New Zealand into line with other countries. Are we allowed to have an opinion on this? By all means. I thoroughly support this stand, and I think that the 95% of submissions are wrong. And I'm happy to stand up and say I'm part of the 5% that think this is an excellent idea. You know, irradiation of food is proven to be safe. And uh, the lack of it threaten. you know, the, the lack of it, it stops us from being able to export uh, food. And it also introduces much higher risk of, um, uh, you know, contamination. So do it. Brilliant. And now on to the cheese news Let's of the day. Let's talk about cheese. Shocking news. A one kg block of tasty cheese is now selling for 16 and $18 at main supermarket chains across New Zealand. Fonterra said that since the pandemic, there has been a significant increase in demand for cheese in New Zealand and globally. It said global cheese prices have jumped 15% over the last year. Here in New Zealand, the company said it held retail prices for as long as it could for brands like Mainland, but for uh, in May, it increased the average price per block by about 50 cents. ANZ Rural Economist Susan Kilsby said that the price of cheese at the local retailers was affected by global demand, which has been rising. She says people are looking to consume more dairy products for health reasons. The underlying market is really strong for all dairy products, and that's why we're starting to see the flow through here to our supermarket prices in New Zealand. It's one of those ironies, Tasha's, that when we succeed internationally, we pay for it domestically. Indeed. I also think that the fact that it has been the Great New Zealand Toasty takeover over the last month has possibly had something to do with that increased demand (laughs) as everybody swarms out for their grilled cheese toasty. Goodness knows I have been. Uh, Choice Hospo is a collective based in Auckland committed to raising the bar for hospitality through education, training, knowledge sharing and creativity and this month they've put their collective weight behind a mighty little mission. They're planning to help bar owner Renee Bayer build a bar in two days to help him bounce back from the impact of COVID. We spoke with Adam Neal, founder of Choice Hospitality, uh, to find out more including how you can support this wild idea. Choice Hospital has, we've done a couple, I guess, charity events post-COVID this year, and, and this is our next instalment. And I guess what we really wanted to do was to to really make a big difference to, to a small business owner uh, in, in Auckland, where we're based. But we saw an opportunity to help uh, Renee, who uh, owns a licensed cafe in Ponsonby. Uh, you know, Renee tried to open his bar, uh, we'll open his cafe last year and then we went into lockdown and he just never really got to bounce back and uh, and that sort of money that was planned to build his little bar uh went to paying bills so i think it's a story that a lot of us can can resonate with and and uh you know like he, he tried something he just needs a bit of a lift he's he's super hospitable he's such a lovely dude and luckily i've got the capacity to sort of help people like this at the moment so so we're going to do a two-fold event where we're going to build him a bar uh in two ish days uh, and we're also going to throw a, an event out the back so that people can come and drink some beverages and eat some food and, and help raise money for the bill. Uh, so it is starting on the 17th 
of July, which is a Saturday, and the official launch party of Renee's U Bar will be on Sunday, uh, most likely. Well, it will happen. There may still be things drying, but uh, it will definitely be happening on Sunday. <laughs> so if people want to come out and have a couple of beers and paint some walls on the Wednesday or Thursday, that'd be cool. Uh, and then I think we just need a plumber. We've got Sparkies and we've got Tylers and we've got Builders. Uh, but basically, anyone who wants to lend a hand, we uh, we certainly wouldn't say no. So my, I mean, I'm from Scotland, uh, and my experience with with New Zealanders is that everyone's always really keen to help. Um, you know, like it's, it's just quite a, it's quite a lovely and, and a, an amazing thing to witness. Is any time that someone needs help, uh, Kiwis kind of turn up in droves. Um, so I think it's a really good feel good story. I love chaos, um, and we I like thrive when. Uh, the world is spinning around me and I just think it's going to be, so these are always like big fun challenges for us. So I can't wait to have uh, the build team because it's the way the venue works is you've got the the front part, which is where the bar will be. So we're going to have like a little walkway. So you walk through the chaos of us trying to build a bar in two days and then you'll go out to the courtyard where we've got Mikey Ball from Ball and Beverages uh, and we've got uh, the poor man, uh, beverages as well. They'll be out there selling cocktails. We're going to have Mac Kenzie doing some tiling as well as selling some beer. And it's just going to be this chaos garden party slash build. And I just think it will be something that no one's really done or experienced, but it will just be a heap of fun. Uh, so the event is going to be at Renee's Bar, obviously. So it's going to be 39 Ponsonby Road, uh, which is slap bang in the middle of Ponsonby. So if you're out on a Saturday night, pop bang, have a couple of drinks and then shoot off to wherever else you're going. So two days, starts at four, probably goes to about midnight. Sounds like the most wild and very Kiwi thing that you could possibly do. Sounds like a classic roof shout to me. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, for more information on the event and how you can help out with the uh, with the working bee, or perhaps just show your support with a delicious cocktail or two, check out the details. We will include them in our newsletter or look up Choice Hospo on Facebook. And now... In lieu of an ad, we have decided this week to bring you a little bit of a live tasting. What have you got there? I have the AF Drinks Classic. So this was the first of the uh, alcohol-free gins produced by Lisa King, who we interviewed last week about uh, her new brand. Well, it's relatively new. It's almost a year year now. I have uh, drinks. Let's do it. There we go. Crashing into the microphone. Good amount of fizz. Mmm. Lovely aroma. What a nose. Oh, yeah, that's good. Mm. How's the mouthfeel? Mm, good. Uh, rich, round, spicy, a little bit chilly. Mm-hmm. I have just cracked into the pink grapefruit and rose, mostly because, Vincent, you mentioned that you thought it was a bit girly for you. So we'll have to have a conversation about the uh, gender stereotyping of mm-hmm. beverages later on. Sure, I'm open to it. Now I'm going to uh, I'm going to crack also into the Cuba Libre, which is one of my favourite um, traditional. You know, if I'm ever going to mix rum and coke, this is how I'm going to do it. But oh yeah, a little spicy. Well, there you go. What do you think? Uh, I'm giving it a, uh, a 6 out of 10. I think in a blind tasting, I would probably pick it up. I don't think it feels uh, round like a gin would roll around in your mouth in that kind of syrupy way. Uh, but it's it's lovely. It's lovely. It's not as spritzy as I thought it would be, and that's 
possibly the way I open the can, uh, but um, I would not hate it. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and now for the main course with Tash McGill. Katie Jacobs spent 20 years working in marketing luxury, high-end champagne and spirits with LVMH, the home of Moet Hennessy. Searching for a change, a future-focused master's program led to research and the build of a new startup called Green Shoots. It's a business focused on making it easier for busy people to get into the garden and grow their own food, with lots of benefits for mind and body along the way. We spoke with Katie about the challenges of starting a food business and breaking down the myth of gardening being just for the privileged. So tell me a little bit about your prior experience and what led you to where you are now with this fledgling startup called Green Shoots. Absolutely. Well, it's, um, it's, it's quite a change to what I used to do. Um, so I've had 20 years in pretty global careers, actually. Um, I started off, my first job was in New York with Saatchi and Saatchi. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent 10 years in advertising uh, in based in the States first and then um, over to UK and worked on kind of European business and then came home. Um, And then I made a change out from there and went into marketing um, and got a job with Moat Hennessy, which of course is part of LVMH, so uh, the biggest luxury goods group in the world, um, looking after some great brands, Fifth Clicquot, Dom Perignon, Ardvig. Some of my personal favourites listed in that. (laughs) Glenn Rangie as well. Mm. Um, And from there I started off in New Zealand and then transferred, well they promoted me into Australia up to Tokyo and then I came back here to be country manager for Moat Hennessey. Uh, New Zealand and Pacific Islands, which was uh, you know just the most incredible journey filled with incredible experiences and and also a lot of hard work. So just uh, diving into that for a second, when you mm. are country manager for mm. a global brand like that or a global portfolio of brands, what does it actually look like in terms of the priorities that you're thinking about and the kind of strategic business decisions that you're needing to make? So I've always, I always said, and I was very clear with my team that there were three things I cared about. So the brands at the at the heart of what we did were really important to me. You know, you've got these. I I, I mean, I love brands. I love stories. Um, and to me, you know, if you've got a brand like Moet and Chandon, which is two hundred years old, mm. you're, you're really a custodian. So mm. how do you? care for the brand how do you nurture a brand was something that was always central to what we did um the other thing was new zealand how do i do the best by new zealand how do i help the industry here you know having spent so many years away moving home to new zealand and and making this a great place um was very important and you i would really notice that that you know in new zealand you want other people to win with you Mm. So it's a very much a win-win situation. So if I was talking to customers, um, you know, the customers who really wanted to find win-win situations uh, were the ones always I got on the best with. And that was really important to me. So it was do right by the customers, make it a better place to be. Mm. Um, And then third was my team, you know, support my team, protect my team, look after my team. So those three were always my key focuses. Uh, Sometimes with a you know, a big company that was great and an alignment and, and worked really well and other times maybe not quite so well. But they were always my three key focuses. So let's unpack a little what led you to then the shift. As you say, you're you're now you've created a startup 
and you went through a period of being a student on the way to that journey. Mm. So was there a particular uh, was there a particular shift in thinking that kind of led you to this new phase? Talk to me a little bit about how you got there and then how you set your sights on where you are now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it was uh, a long journey, a long mental journey over a number of years um, to get there. I mean, Moet Hennessy and LVMH was amazing. As I said, I had I was lucky enough and privileged enough to have these experiences, which are you know world class, mind blowing opportunities and and really good training. Um, but you know, both my parents have always been self employed. Um, my mother is a journalist, my father is an engineer, and I always just assumed that's that's where I would end up mm. at some stage. I think <laughs> something to do with the magic numbers four zero. Um, you start going crap you know if it's when when is this happening you know <laughs> at some stage all the vague ideas I have for what's going to happen in my life you're like well you know you kind of got to do it if yeah it's going to happen it'll happen when you um, make it happen yeah you know and 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 you know I'm definitely motivated by making things happen I love creating which is why I always loved brands and marketing and and you know I wanted to create something um so I decided to actually you know and I also wanted to make that happen here particularly in Auckland Mm -hmm. Um, so how could I do that and you know again working for a multinational like that progression happens overseas at some stage yeah Um, so it was kind of am I do I want to get back on that merry-go-round I was like well you know what no I'm going to take a deep breath and I'm going to actually look at other things and just again quite like the old step into the unknown and see where that leads um then realized maybe I wasn't quite so happy to be completely unknown (laughs) um which is why I decided actually doing a master's uh, would be a really good way to help guide me in that journey um I looked at a whole lot of different programs but I ended up doing the masters of technological um futures at tech future labs Mm -hmm. um because, you know, as I was kind of like, okay, I want to start something, I want to do something of my own. It's like, well, I know what I know about, I know where my skills lie, my experience lies, but what don't I know? And I thought, well, there's a whole world of tech out there that have, you know, have been part of what I do, but there's a lot I don't know. And that to me felt like something I should learn about before I did whatever I did. So what did you discover during the learning process of exploring the masters? Well, it was quite interesting because I felt like I decided to make a huge change and to live my life completely differently and then the rest of the world came along for the journey. So <laughs> I started that in June last uh, January last year. <laughs> By March everybody joined me at home in front of their computer. Um, <laughs> figuring out what the hell was going on. Right. Um so yeah, it's been it was really quite bizarre, really, that, um, the way that that happened. Um, and But, you know, I, there was a whole lot of, okay, draw mind maps of what interests you and what's important to you. And, and, I had a, and then you kind of have to go through a whole process of doing these projects um, and choosing a topic. So it's very much an applied practical master's. Mm-hmm. So you choose, so A, you do a lot of learning about different tech that is out there. And, but then you also have a project that you apply it all to, which is probably 60%, I would say, mm-hmm. um, 70% of the course. Um, so I was trying to figure out what it was what that was going to be you know and as I said like I love stories I love books um was it going to be something around the arts um and then I think I was going you know the weather in that first lockdown was super lucky it was really beautiful so Mm. spending quite a lot of time 
walking out okay. as well. And out of, you know, that's where I do a lot of my thinking is when I'm going for walks. Ah, and Salvatore Ambulato. <laughs> yes, it is yes. solved by walking. Yes. 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 My whole life, I think, is absolutely, that's key. Um, and, and, you know, I'd walk around and, uh, you know, I had an apartment in Parnell and right by the Rose Gardens and it's just beautiful, you know, and I'd be walking on the waterfront and I just realised how much being out in nature how good it was for me and how mm. much I really actually loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when I first moved back to New Zealand, which is six years ago now, I was so stressed and I was traveling all the time and the work was crazy and it was a lot of, you know, eating and drinking and, and, and big cities. And I had this little kind of handkerchief garden at the front of where I lived and I still got a gardener um and she was wonderful and she'd help teach me and then she kind of stopped coming because she got busy and so I took it over and I just developed a real passion for it I just loved being in the garden and like I'm a useless meditator (laughs) I know that I really enjoy yoga but often I give up after half an hour because it gets bored and want to do something (laughs) else and start getting twitchy but you know the gardening was cool suddenly it's three hours down and you know and I'd meet my neighbors and my neighbor's cat would come and hang out with me and it was just such a pleasant vibrant good thing for me to be doing and really slowed me down and and just grounded me um that I actually thought you know what what could I do in this space and, you know, mm-hmm. and I suddenly started going, well, you know what, there's Mitre 10 and there's Bunnings and there's, you know, a couple of chains of garden stores, but it's kind of, that's that's what there is, you know? And if you don't really know what you're doing, like, I don't know if you've ever tried to put an automatic watering system in, but, you know. No, I have not. There's 2,000 different bits of plastic that you can choose in an aisle. And you're like, I was just like, just what? You know, so you try and grab someone like, I don't even know where to start. Like, mm-hmm. do I need 18 millimeter or 23? And what? what? Like, yeah. What, which of these 30 different types of spinny heads do it? You know, how does this work? So I thought, if you don't quite know what you're doing, you know, is there an opportunity in there actually to do something that I feel like really can, is good for me mm. spiritually? You know, all my health is just amazing. How can I help other people do this? Cool. And get involved in it. And is there a is there a kind of a commercial opportunity within that? So how did you go about exploring what the opportunity is? So I mean, and this was what was really cool about doing it through an academic process mm. as opposed to, you know, just a business purely commercial, was they do guide you through the process. So I had to do a whole literature review. So my kind of question was, you know, what kind of tech can be used to provide individualized assistance for Aucklanders to increase their engagement right um in the gardens so i had to do a whole literature review on what does this mean so i did a whole piece of work on looking at studies into motivations and benefits of gardening you know is is it is it just me or is everybody else going to benefit from gardening <laughs> no and the research is um, incredible I mean a lot of it's anecdotal um, rather than what I was on the head but people the health benefits and it's not just physical but it's mental as well from gardening are are overwhelming um, for older people for kids like you know there's studies like uh, New Zealand academics looked into effects on housewives um, it, it it helps people yeah the the health benefits of it are just fantastic so can you unpack some of those for us 
Yeah, so I think, I mean, obviously getting out into nature, um, mm-hmm. there was a, I, I'm going to forget the author, but he posited a theory in a 1984 book called Biophilia, which is people's desire to be in nature. So it was kind of a really kind of primitive need of ours to be right, yeah, in, in the earth um, and being grounded. So I think that's kind of where it comes from. But then also just, you know, it's physical work. You're mm. in the ground, you're in nature. Um, and then just that mental space, I think, which is the bit that spoke to me so much. Um, so in terms of, you know, stress relief, um, positivity, um, for a lot of people, there's connections. So once you start looking at um, community gardens as well, the piece around connection. And, and that's what I found too. As I said, like suddenly all my neighbours would stop and say hi as they walk past. Um, for, for children, if they start growing their own food, um, they're much more likely to eat a more diverse diet. They're much more likely to eat vegetables and fruit if they're seeing it mm. growing, mm. Um, you know, which of course is the thinking behind the whole garden to table movement. Yes. Um, so, and, and, you know, and as, as I went through, I realized it wasn't just gardening, but actually this whole idea of food gardening. I think I identified two different mindsets. One's the you know, aesthetic gardener, gardening for the beauty of it. Um, so much more likely to be flowers and, and, mm-hmm. and roses and all of that. Or, you know, people who were very much practical producers. I did, I did a whole lot of um, interviews with people as well um, who were like, no, I grow for food. Like that's why you go in the garden is you want to create something, you know. Mm. Um, and that, and they often, often those people were, mothers with children who wanted to teach their children um and they were worried about you know food security so they don't you know are the vegetables they're getting from the supermarket overly sprayed you know what's on them what are what's toxic about that versus i can control it if i plant Mm. it myself so there was a big bit in there and then i talked to a whole lot of kind of horticultural experts so um you know the Auckland Botanic Gardens is an incredible resource I went down there and talked to their um you know um head of education and she was saying look the 70 to 80 percent of the people who come here are you know who who want advice are mothers with children um, wow. which was also backed up in the community gardens yeah that's um, so fascinating isn't it yeah I, you kind of get it though because suddenly they're going okay I don't care about my own body but oh this little body <laughs> yeah what are they putting in that and how mm-hmm. can I make sure they're putting the right things in that I think mm. there's something you know that not that I'm a mother but that whole um powerful kind of hey aunties are very important when it comes to the nourishing oh, and, and nurturing of yeah. young minds. I'll, yeah. I'll say that till, till the end of the day. Absolutely. Um, so where did you land with it in terms of narrowing down the place that you wanted to focus your energy for for creating green shoots? Yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, well, one of my things was, if, you know, very much value-driven. Mm. How can I make people's lives better? Right. So, and in that, to me, to unpack that, it's not just about you know, force feed something on them that's going to give, make them healthier. You know, you must garden because if you don't, it's, yeah. it's gonna, not going to be good for we'll you. Or just add in some more kids. social guilt on top of, you know, yeah, hey, look, if you're not yeah. doing your 30 minutes of mindfulness right. and your five minutes of, you know, yeah, journaling exactly. and yeah, yeah, all exactly. those things. Um, so, you know, how can I actually get people to enjoy it? How can I make it easy for people was really where I came, um, started to come from. Um, and that's why I kind of actually eventually did a whole big brainstorming of different things, but kind of ended up with a three-pronged approach. Mm-hmm. Um, so number one is 
really seedling kits. So I was kind of looking at what my food bag had done for helping people cook healthy meals at right. home yeah. um, and really do a seedling kit so it came with everything you need to get going in the garden. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of, as I say, taking the admin out of it. So you just get left with the fun bits, which is the, actually the planting and the growing and the eating, yeah. harvesting and eating. Um, so that was a pretty key first kind of place to start um and then also an online store so Mm -hmm. that rather than that whole like oh my god i'm suddenly in a big you know big box (laughs) store and i don't quite know what to get and there's fifty thousand options it's like no no here are two or three good options um which will do the job for you you Mm. know like i i don't kind of simplifying it down for people totally make- like i need one trowel like when i garden i use gloves a trowel you know secateurs snips yeah gumboots you know and something to gather stuff up and there's you don't need a whole lot to get involved with this um and particularly in new zealand we're really lucky most of the suburbs here have really good soil so you know as long as you're treating that well and not over doing it yeah um you know this there's, there's it's we're lucky it's not too cold except for maybe today's temperature it's not too hot it's it's you know we're in a very temperate zone mm. um but it's just taking that factor out for people I think yeah how important was it to simplify things as a way of sort of removing barriers for people massive and I still think you know I still have people who are like oh I've got a black thumb I'd like yeah I love this idea but I can't grow anything you know that's something I hear a lot and it's like no 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 this is your best you know I think one of the things I discovered through this process is you know the quality of what you start from is really important. I think it's like when you cook, right? Mm. If you use a very good quality olive oil versus a crappy oil, your food's going to taste better. And in a way that in gardening is the same. I, you know, I found a supplier, um, his name's Guy Morgan, and he runs um, seedling systems in Waiuku. They grow for all the market gardeners. Oh, right. Yeah. So the seed stock that they use is really strong, healthy seeds proven to grow, proven to be very tasty Mm. because that's what market gardeners demand. Yeah. So therefore the seedlings in the kits are really strong, really healthy. I, you know, they never, I say no spray, so they don't spray them, but they're going to give you a much better chance of success than, you know, some something you picked up somewhere else, which has grown differently. Yeah. And um, is that something, is that the kind of like seedling stock that isn't necessarily available if you just kind of rock into your local garden store, yeah, or your local bunnings? Yeah, just don't bunnings? necessarily know. Yeah, um, okay. Often it can be grown because they're, they're chosen because it's fast growing. Mm. Um, so it will grow, you know, so great, but it actually only took a month to get from seed to yeah. seedlings mm-hmm. which is cool grow fast but fall over and might not be as as strong you know so it's all that kind of process so you, you supplied so you supply really strong seedlings yeah and then you have you know the option for just just the equipment that you need and nothing that you don't what did you have to go about solving problems around you know sort of educating because you can give yeah. people the greatest tools in the world and they're still like yeah but I don't know how to switch that on no no completely I mean and, and there's other things is also like if you get it from a garden centre you've got to get six of this and six of that mm. whereas for me I mix them all in together so it's kind right. of like one of each so to speak and, and two lettuces rather than having to get six of this six and this so you can do a mixed pack but you yeah, know absolutely that whole education piece and it's okay so you know I have a horticulture um, 
expert, um, Judy Keats, who I work with. So she does the plans in terms of what are the right plants to plant at the right time. So every month, if you get a you know a, a seedling kit in March, it's going to be very different from what what's in the kit in mm. October because it's absolutely the right plants to plant at the right time. Um, and they all come with a really clear guide, which is not just how to get started and how to plant, but then how to care for them, but also how to harvest. Yeah. Um, and then that third prong, um, which I'm still working on, and hopefully for spring will be much more developed, is that, you know, a hub online, which has the how to get going and, and also the recipes. You know, my mother's, as you know, a, a, a um, cook and, and writes a lot of recipes. Um, she's been super supportive. And I'm always like, Mom, I need a sage recipe. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> you know, here's a, here's, a, here's a great thing you can do with that. So, again, not so really that from growing it all the way through to how to use them as well. A couple of challenges which I think every business probably has at the beginning, particularly if they're really doing it as I am, which is kind of from scratch. Um, there's certainly no like cash flow in yeah, the background. No, no venture capitalists um, and yeah, in, the, in the back pocket. Okay, yeah. you know it's like you're get, grabbing the attention of people and very busy people. You know, by definition, I'm targeting mothers with kids, um, trying to make something easier for them, and they're as certainly as I've been. Um, learning like the, just the busiest people out there so how do you help them and cut through and, and you know part of why I'm trying to help them is also why it's difficult to reach them mm. you know like I go to the markets on Saturdays I've, um, at La Segal markets um, but you know the mums aren't there because they're standing on the sidelines throwing kids around or you know, yeah yeah that's when they get to do the supermarket <laughs> shop so you know there's a lot of those factors so it's definitely trying to get the attention um and then also i think route to market like getting to people i really wanted to do a direct to people online but then again that comes with its own challenges because you've suddenly got to promote websites drive traffic and you yeah. know Great feedback, great feedback from people when I tell them the idea, great feedback from people who've bought it. Um, it works really well. It's just getting enough people knowing about it is really the challenge, I mm. think. You know, and it's not it's not a it's not like, you know, for instance, whiskey. You know, I've made a whiskey that's same, same but different. You know, <laughs> yeah. different different ways of it, you know. It's very individual and it's special, but however, you know what whiskey is, so you mm -hmm. know what you're buying. Yeah. This, in a way, is a different concept. Well, and different also because with whiskey, just to use an example that I might know a thing or two about, <laughs> but, but with whiskey, um, somebody else actually does all of the work. Yeah. And they do it over time. Yeah. And then they put it in a bottle, and I just have to rock up to a store or go online and select the one that I want, and it arrives at my at my house whereas this is a little bit more actually you've done some of the work and some of the time but it's going to arrive at your doorstep and then there's still some more work for you to do and then you're going to also wait a little bit of time before Completely. they're ready to harvest so yeah. um, I guess quite a uh, perhaps a slightly different idea than what people are you know used to yeah no completely mm. and um yes so you know in that way it's more like which is why i use the analogy of the meal kits yeah you know? like yeah. um it, it it's not uh although i have started you know i do offer products which are uh, it's pre-planted for you a herb plant with nine nine herbs oh, there already you go. planted in it oh. um which is has not it's been very popular actually surprise surprise you know I'm like you can customize it no no just send me the nine herbs okay <laughs> easy 
um, you know, and I'd like to offer more full, fuller solutions too in that way, which mm-hmm. is, you know, here's the container, here's the soil, and here's the plants, I think would yeah. work well for people. Um, but you're right, because, you know, it's not just I would love to do this. It's I would love to do this. Do I have somewhere I can put it, and is it ready to go? Mm. You know, I've yeah. got a planter, but it's full of weeds. So I'll have to go and do that before I can buy. Or I don't have a planter, so I've got to do that before I can buy. So there's definitely a couple of... Um, Mm-hmm. You know, in the process, which is what I'm kind of always thinking about and looking at how to make it even easier and simpler for people, get yeah. over those hurdles. When it comes to simplification, what mm. do you think, and this might be anecdotal, but what's the biggest piece? Is it is it the ease of decision making? So people can, people can, you remove it, they can make a decision that, yes, I want to garden and grow some of my own food. And then they can trust you with the rest in terms of a kit that's going to be seasonal for planting at the right time to then, you know, harvest at the right time. Uh, So is it the ease of decision making or is it the time factor? Which one do you think is the thing that is making the most difference? Or are they same, same? I think in a way they're kind of tied up in in, in a similar point. Mm Because to me, I mean, I, I talk about mental space versus... I guess what you're talking about is do I have the mental space to work all of this out Yeah. versus do I have the time to just do it? Mm. Um, and to me, you know, in terms of competing attention, I, I see the biggest issue being the time to have the mental space to look at something. Right, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. There's only so many things you can learn about and, and, and be knowledgeable in. And and this is one thing that I you know we can I can the product can be the brains for you, so you don't have to worry about it. Mm. Um, so I, I think that you know you don't have to learn all about the seasonality. I mean, there's so much conflicting information out there. So I, I would say that yeah, it's time, but it's mental time. Yeah, as well, and mental space. Okay, I'm interested. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm constantly interested in what are the trade offs that people are making in order to live the lifestyle that they're living, but then also try and cram all of the good things in, yeah. you know, and it feels like that is, that's a crux of busyness where, yeah. you know, I think, I think many of us are constantly making sacrifices that ultimately do impact the way that we eat, the way that we grow, the way that we, you know, take care of our everything, minds, bodies, yeah. the whole nine yards. Yeah. And I think this is, this is exactly, exactly what I'm trying to do is say, you don't need to, you know, I mean, it's great for people who want, this is their hobby, they're very knowledgeable. And I get a lot of people at the market to come up to me and be like, I love, you know, my garden and this is something I spend a lot of time on. But I get that you might want to grow food with your kids, but you don't have all that time. It's not going to be one of mm-hmm. your things. You can still do it. Yeah. So you can spend that time on what what you need to, which are other things, but you can still have this as part of your life. And I use use this word uh, lightly, tenderly, <laughs> um, but I am interested to talk about privilege. The, the meme goes something along the lines of, I just spent $145 and three hours, then waited three months to harvest this one tiny vegetable I could have purchased for 25 cents, yeah, yeah. which is kind of the, you know, the... That is yeah. that is a bit of a running joke, I think, um, yeah. about about gardening. You know, what's the investment of time, energy, finance for harvest, right? Yeah. And thankfully, many of us have, you know, vegetable producers and growers that just do all of that work for us and provide it to us at the supermarket where we can choose whether or not we're prepared to pay $14 a kilo for zucchinis in the yeah. middle of the off-season. However, talk to me about privilege pricing 
how do those things roll together in a business like this? Um, again, this is one of the great benefits of starting this as you know an academic um, project mm. is that I did spend quite a lot of time investigating this because I was quite conscious of, of this um, particular factor. And it was actually when I was doing the interviews with the horticultural experts that this really came up. Um, so as part of that, I wanted to get a diverse range of thoughts and opinions. Um, and I talked to a lady called Louisa Ryan, um, who was a distant relative, I think, which I've been put in touch with. And, and, and she has worked as a you know, health administrator and, and in health funding um, and looking at social programs as well. And, and a big part of that is you know, nutrition. Mm. Um, so she's super, super knowledgeable in this area, which is not something I knew before I started talking to her. But, you know, she, she lived and, and spent most of her life in um, Mungary Bridge. You know, and, she, and we sat down and she said, you know, I was talking about this with my mother, mother the other day. We were driving around and she said, and she said, you know, in the 60s and 70s and even, you know, 30, 30 years ago, she's like, everybody, the, the gardens here used to be beautiful. Mm. You know, everybody had their own beautiful gardens um, and they would grow their own fruit and you would know your neighbours. Um, and, and she said, and now uh, that doesn't happen. People are living in much smaller houses. Um, mm. They don't have as much accessible land. And, and that doesn't happen um, to her. And as she explained it, it was part of a bigger social issues. It was a reflection of the way we lived. And, and back in, in the past, you know, affordability of housing. People owned houses, so they tended to be stay in one place for longer. Mm. So they had the pride in their houses. You know, that it wasn't so transient. It wasn't, I'm renting and then I'm going to move and then I'm going to move. But they developed neighbourhoods and they de- developed communities. So they were more house proud and and, and they grew gardens and, and, and they belonged to the land. Mm. Um, and so, I, I, you know, I was very conscious of this. In fact, she said, you know, she kind of said, well, now gardening is for rich white women. Um, you know, and I was kind of like, okay. <laughs> you know, that's, you know, and for me, that's been part of my thinking and part of my development process as well. Um, the other person I spoke to was Richard Maines, who's a coordinator for Gardens for Health, which is a community gardens program run by, Di- by Di- Diabetes Foundation. Mm-hmm. So it's very much recognizing good nutrition and helping people grow their own food has health outcomes. You know, yeah. Back to the original yeah. conversation about health physical health, mental health as well in terms of gardening. Um, and, and, you know, and, and he talked about this too, and they're out, out there doing, you know, very different diverse programs and parts of, you know, different types of communities. Um, and, 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 you know, so for me, any seedlings that aren't sold, I donate to the Gardens for Health program so that they are, being used throughout um, community gardens throughout Auckland, which I, I love. You know, we had I do companion planting, so there's always in summer a marigold, mm. and I had a tray of marigolds left. So you know, they went out to one of the Hindu um, temples, and you know, I just I, I really like that idea that there is a bigger purpose, and that a, a wide variety of people are getting to eat them. Yeah. But you know, accessibility and price is important to me too. As I said, you know, I have pre-planted options which are much more expensive mm. but yeah you're right I mean it's actually margins and, and pricing is something I probably need to investigate a bit further um, 
particularly given the cost of demand and driving people to websites. But, um, you know, that's really important to me too, that I kind of haven't developed something which is completely out of range. And it's for mothers with kids, you Mm. know, and and that's often for most people not a time of life when you're flush with money. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so, you know, you've got a mortgage or you've got high rent costs and you're trying to feed and clothe and look after kids, uh, particularly in modern parenting, where they're supposed to be doing all these different sports and <laughs> activities all the time. Activities, too. activities. So yeah, that was a really important part of my decision progr- uh, um, decision process um, and, and how I could do that in a way that I still felt was, you know, trying to do good, as I mm. said, and make it better for people, make lives better for people. Yeah, I mean, you can't do everything for everybody, um, but not wanting to just really target a very wealthy luxury audience was important to me Yeah, with what I'm doing. Mm. Even to the branding, you know, it's bright, it's accessible, it's appealing to kids. So if people uh, want to find out more about yes. the product what yeah. where do they go what do they what do they do what can they expect what what can they do between now and spring to get ready absolutely well greenshoots.nz um is the website and sign up for the newsletter um which is not a crazy kind of bombard it's more like a once a month um but that also has key tips key recipes um but a you know light-hearted here's how to do things as well as also information on when the when it's back in stock um so they'll know first when it's ready to go and what the options are and any new products i'm going to trial i think a pick and mix product um which is kind of if you want to build it yourself um your box yourself if you're worried about okay you know i really don't like coriander um, i don't want that in there that's okay we can make it happen so yeah so i'd sign up for the newsletter at greenshoots.nz um or greenshoots.nz on facebook and instagram so vincent you have a garden at home Mm -hmm. what are some of the benefits do you relate to some of the research and findings that drove the startup of green shoots oh absolutely i think that i can think of two things off the bat and i'm sure i can think of more if i had more time but the first thing is just that connection to food production you know knowing how hard it is to grow vegetables and how easy it is to screw it up gives you a lot of respect you know when you walk through the supermarket and you see all those beautiful fruit and veg just laid out there food production is hard it's really hard uh so that was the first thing the second thing was um just the satisfaction that you can see in uh particularly our kids as they you know we we made sure that the kids all had a portion have a portion of the garden where they grow courgettes and carrots and tomatoes um and that has been great. You know, it's great seeing kids returning to probably what I suppose would be you'd call quite traditional kind of fun family activities. Mm, absolutely. I think I, as a as an urban gardener of sorts with a limited amount of space, um, certainly have appreciated the ability to try and figure out what works in my space. Right. Mm. Uh, And also because I've learned a little bit more about how my space actually works for gardening, I also then don't struggle with any kind of guilt about what I can't grow myself. You know what I mean? Mm, sure. Right? I mean, I've managed to, uh, we, we've managed. I mean, I'm, I'm the secondary player in all this because it's uh, Sarah uh, is the uh, one of the green fingers. But we have managed to uh, kill some tremendous amount of plants over the years. So, yeah, talk about guilt, war crimes. <laughs> 
this week in food history, sliced bread was born. How about that? This week in 1928. I think it'll catch on. <laughs> Otto Frederick Roweder spent many years working on it starting in 1912. It took him a very long time to actually figure out how to make it work. <laughs> but by 1928, it was patented and it was the bread slicing machine. Uh, so there you go. Um, apparently, bread sales increased 2,000% over the next few months after oh, the machine yeah, was released. I, um, I love uh, those stories of commitment, you know. what? What? How long is that? That is 17 years. It's a long time. It's a long time. In 1996, Dolly, the first animal cloned from an adult animal, was born, Dolly the sheep, at the Rosalind Institute in Edinburgh, Scotland. And this, I don't know if you remember this, but in 2006, three people were arrested by the FBI for attempting to sell Coca-Cola trade secrets and recipes to Pepsi-Cola. I remember it. I remember it well, actually. They were senior executives and they landed themselves in the clink. (laughs) Without a drink. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. That's it for this week on the feed. I do hope that you have a great week. We will see you on the newsletter and in social. Don't forget to email us your questions and thoughts to editor at thefeed.co.nz. Cheers. <laughs>